0: You are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. Hello and welcome to the Black Experience Hour. This is a weekly program bringing you news from a variety of sources. And this one is being recorded on the 7th of July for the listening week that begins the 8th. And your reader's name is Susan Shirey. I'll start this week with an article that needs finishing from last week. The topic is reparations. This appeared in theroot.com and is written by Wayne Washington. It was originally published June 21st. This is a topic very much in the news right now. Why reparations owed to black people could be too massive for cash payouts. I'll take my reparation payment in the form of Boone Hall Plantation, please. Boone Hall is a sprawling plantation located in Charleston County, South Carolina. Today it offers tours so the curious can get a glimpse of what it was like during antebellum days when black people were enslaved and white people got richer than Midas from their free labor. The place is so scenic, Ryan Reynolds and Blake Lively got married there. Not sure how they didn't know about the beatings and rapes that likely took place there during slavery, but they've since said they're very, very sorry for using a place of horror as a wedding venue. I grew up not far from Boone Hall, and it's likely that my ancestors on my father's side of the family were enslaved there. I'd like the current owners of the plantation to give it to me. After all, how much would it ever have been worth without the back-breaking labor of my ancestors? I figured I'd just throw out my pitch for Boone Hall because there are murmurs in the country about trying to find a way to make reparations for that bad slavery thing. U.S. Representative Cory Bush of Missouri has legislation that would give $14 trillion to black Americans to compensate them for the brutal enslavement of their ancestors. Bush and other backers of that legislation want the country to at least discuss reparations, and it's a discussion I and many other Black Americans would welcome. But just as award—pardon me—but just as awarding Boone Hall to me isn't quite workable, neither are cash payments to Black Americans to pay for the enslavement of their ancestors. It's not that fourteen trillion dollars isn't a lot of money; it is. But it's only about two-thirds of this country's annual GDP. Let's see. 246 years of slavery helped make the United States the most powerful and one of the wealthiest nations on earth, and me and the roughly 40 million other native-born black Americans split two-thirds of the economic output from a single year. That does not compute. Indeed, there is no credible way to compute what would be owed if the country was serious about reparations. and there is no indication that it is serious. How much is a life of enslavement worth in today's dollars? The calculations can't simply measure work output based on an eight-hour day. Slaves, we all know, worked ever so slightly longer than that each day. And then there are the rapes and the beatings and the selling of a slave's children. How do you calculate centuries of forced illiteracy? There is a real need for some national acknowledgement of the horrors of slavery and the economic impact it has to this day. Since 1865, when the end of the Civil War brought emancipation, the economic head start white Americans had over their black countrymen hasn't been erased. Research from the RAND Corporation shows that white Americans hold ten times more total wealth than black Americans. I dare say not all of that can be attributed to rap music or wearing your pants too low. Something structural is at play here and any solution would likely need to be far more systemic than a check. Think vastly expanded educational opportunities. Expanded land and business ownership opportunities and a check. I'm not sure what that reparation system needs to look like, but it needs to be broad and long-lasting. Meanwhile, while we're coming up with what work, pardon me, while we're coming up with what could work, I'll take Boone Hall. Washington Place has a much better ring to it, don't you think? Once again, that author was Wayne Washington. It says, at the bottom, Wayne Washington is an investigative reporter based in Florida. And that segues nicely into the next article, Are Reparations a Possibility? We Asked the Experts. This was published June 16th, written by Jessica Washington for theroot.com. The Root spoke to experts about the state of reparations in the United States and where we need to go. The fight for reparations for formerly enslaved people in the United States has been brewing for centuries, but in recent years, the push to provide reparations to black Americans has been heating up. In California, lawmakers are moving ahead with the most comprehensive reparations plan yet. And on Capitol Hill, lawmakers like Representative Cory Bush are pushing for massive national reparations plans but just how realistic are these efforts, and where should people who want reparations focus their energy? The Root sat down with experts to find out. Pardon me, that's to try to find out. Folks who are deeply into the fight for reparations may already know this name, Dr. William Darity, an economist and Duke University professor Penned from here to equality reparations for black Americans in the 21st century, a book making the case for reparations. And Dr. Darity has a lot to say about the plans for reparations popping up across the country now. I think that the only effective plan for reparations must be conducted by the federal government, he says. Piecemeal efforts at the state, local, or individual or private organization level are actually distractions and detours from the central task of getting Congress to pass comprehensive reparations. In his book, which he co-wrote with author Kristen Mullen, they argued that in order to close the wealth gap, black Americans descended from enslaved people in the United States would need $350,000 per person in reparations, Their plan estimates that it would cost the United States government $14 trillion to accomplish that goal. The difficulty is that both the state and local governments, as well as private donors, don't really have the capacity to meet the bill, explains Darity. He went on, if the minimum bill is $14 trillion, it's noteworthy that the total budget combined for all state and local governments in the United States is less than $5 trillion. Joe Vaughn McAllister, a political science lecturer at Howard University, says she understands Dr. Darity's concerns that the push for reparations could distract from the larger goal of a national plan. However, she remains more optimistic about the movement in the states. In California, lawmakers are set to vote later this summer on a comprehensive reparations plan, which includes cash payments to descendants of enslaved African Americans. McAllister says, It's major. The nation should be paying attention. California is the petri dish of the nation. that starting place to spark others in the country to follow. She said, referencing policies like same-sex marriage that caught steam after becoming a law in California. She went on, I can go down the list of things that have been introduced and gotten through an entire process in California and informed the rest of the nation. Whether we ever achieve the ambitious goals outlined by folks like Dr. Darity, McAllister says it's important to remember that the United States has paid reparations to other groups before, such as after World War II, following the forced internment of Japanese Americans. She also referenced the fact that Haitians were forced to pay billions of dollars to France for the crime of winning their freedom from their enslavers. She says... This isn't outlandish, it's only outlandish, because historically speaking, things have been repeatedly done to people of African descent, to black people in the United States, and repayment for that behavior has been seen as something that is too much. Even getting an apology for slavery didn't happen until the 90s. How far have we come on reparations? Ohio State History Professor Hassan Kwame Jeffries says that Progress in places like California has been swift. Back in 2020, the farthest you were going to get was creating a panel, says Jeffries. Now there are several comprehensive proposals. And in Evanston, Illinois, some residents have begun to receive reparations on a small scale. But Jeffries says on a larger scale, we're much more likely to see plans that look different from how we're traditionally pardon me, from how we have traditionally conceived of reparations. We have a higher likelihood of getting programs that are called reparations, says Jeffries, as opposed to this kind of direct payments, which is how I think we've typically thought about reparations. Getting a consensus on what reparations is for and why it is necessary is massively important, says Jeffries, It's been framed on the political right as just a giveaway, he says, and so until that changes, until the idea of what reparations are changes, then there won't be a what-will-it-look-like conversation, because you won't even get that far. Education is a key component of this fight, says Jeffries. The case for reparations isn't made simply on the basis of the horror of slavery, which is absolutely in and of itself could be made, he says, but the issue with the institution of slavery is not just what occurred while slavery was legal, but it's the legal me, but it's the legacy of the institution of slavery, the question of discrimination, institutional legal sanction, discrimination continues for another one hundred years in both formal and informal ways. Despite some of his concerns about reparations plans on the state level being a distraction, Dr. Darity says that overall he's hopeful about the future. If you asked me this 30 years ago when I first started working on this, I would have said, Well, the odds are pretty slim. If you asked me five years ago, I would have said, Yeah, that's really not likely, but we shouldn't, pardon me, but we should put a plan in place. He says, Now, If you ask me today, I would say yes, the odds are still long, but the situation looks more optimistic than it ever has in my lifetime. Next article, a slightly tongue-in-cheek opinion piece on the 4th of July, which has recently passed. This one comes from Salon.com, written by D. Watkins. How are we supposed to celebrate July 4th after Juneteenth? I admit I was jaded when Juneteenth was made a federal holiday, but I'll take it over July 4th. America, you can have the 4th of July back. Last month, President Joe Biden signed legislation designating June 19th, or Juneteenth, a day commemorating the end of slavery in the United States, a federal holiday. I received the news via text from a friend saying, Juneteenth is officially a holiday, all caps, four exclamation points, followed by a series of emojis. I went to Twitter to see what people were saying about it and got kind of freaked out by the Super Bowl-winning level of excitement I found. Don't get me wrong, I think it's a great gesture, but people were acting like the president released a reparations plan, as if the direct deposits were about to hit our accounts. I could understand the excitement if the federal government had done something meaningful like ended the war on drugs and freed the people incarcerated in federal prison for marijuana distribution while legal cannabis clinics open up all over the country. They just made a new federal holiday. Relax. That said, the energy and meaning behind Juneteenth is special enough for me to stop celebrating July 4th. The day, the idea, the theme... The outfit choice. For good, starting this year. I'm going to call my editor and ask for some extra task I'm normally not responsible for, like filing papers in the office, even though we're still working virtually, or standing on the beltway near my house swinging a huge red sign telling people to go read Salon. Giving up the holiday won't be hard. I've never really embraced July 4th for a number of reasons, including but not limited to the following number one I am black. Black people fought in the Revolutionary War for Caucasian freedom but didn't receive their own. Thomas Jefferson wrote in the Declaration of Independence that all men were born equal with pardon me, equal with the right to liberty, while he enslaved hundreds of people of African descent. George Washington began his command of the Continental Army forbidding the recruitment of black soldiers, an order he later had to rescind. Some enslaved soldiers who fought ended up being returned to lives of bondage after the war, and the U.S. Congress banned African Americans from military service in 1792. The irony of the Founding Fathers fighting for their independence while robbing others of their most basic rights shouldn't be lost on anyone. Number 2. The National Anthem is Awful The lyrics to The Star-Spangled Banner come from a terrible piece of poetry, Defense of Fort McHenry, that should have been forgotten instead of set to song. It was written by Francis Scott Key, a racist, slave-owning hypocrite who took a shot at the enslaved men who fled to fight with the British in the War of 1812 in exchange for their freedom with this line, No refuge could save the hireling and slave, from the terror of flight or the the gloom of the grave. Every year I ask the question, who wouldn't want freedom, and how could he not understand them opting out for a better life? And even aside from the meaning, the poem itself doesn't hold up. He'd never win a slam with that elementary rhyme. I'd like to see him sit through a critique in even the kindest MFA workshop. He'd leave the table crying. Number three, I stand with Colin Kaepernick. Watching a football game or lighting a firecracker on the fourth is disrespectful to Colin Kaepernick. That man sacrificed his extremely lucrative NFL career in the name of justice for black people, and I will never forget that. Last year, he denounced July fourth as a celebration of white supremacy. He's not wrong. I think he might proudly celebrate Independence Day if black people in America didn't still have to worry about poor housing, poor schools, discrimination across the board, and, oh yeah, getting our heads blown off by police officers who too often get away with it or serve only minimal jail time. Number four, and also, the uniforms are trash. The American flag makes a terrible fashion statement, I don't wear red, white, and blue star spangled short sets, or t shirts, or socks, or hats, or gloves, or skull caps, or sneakers, or the flagged out plastic drapes that my old neighbor used to collect his geometro, pardon me, my neighbor used to protect his geometro from the sun and from inclement weather. So here I am, too jaded to fully embrace Juneteenth, but too literate to hold a warm place for Independence Day in my cold, cold heart. I think about our conflicting celebrations of Independence around this time every year. I've been attending Juneteenth events, functions, and parties for the last five years or so, but I've been to Independence Day cookouts my whole life. I always eat the food on July 4th. Plates of grilled lamb, barbecue chicken, deviled eggs, all the salads, carbs on carbs on carbs but I'm not eating for me. Nope, I have principles and discipline. I will, however, eat for the ancestors. I never contribute financially or materially, materially, as that would feel too much like honoring the cause. I have to be strong, so when I get invited, whether by family and friends or strangers from the Internet, I let them know that I will be arriving with nothing but an appetite for destruction, just like the Founding Fathers. While I honestly do connect more with Juneteenth, I would be lying if I said the initial hype around its newly federally recognized status this year didn't make it feel a bit like a special little Independence Day for the Blacks. Hearing Nancy Pelosi and Joe Biden sing, lift every voice, offbeat, does not liberate anyone. But I am a sucker for the happiness of my people, seeing them lace themselves into full-on dashiki levels of attire if they haven't worn since Chadwick Boseman's Black Panther premiere. Being proud of our African heritage in the name of freedom, all of that is a win for me. And so I will not get upset at people who still choose to celebrate the July 4th, because having the ability to champion what you want to champion and celebrate what you want to celebrate is what these holidays are supposed to be about. So, if you do decide to have a big Independence Day cookout, white people, that's what you call a barbecue, I will gladly come, eat, and even take two or three plates to go. For the ancestors, of course. And now back to theroot.com for some more current postings. Black farmers have faced decades of discrimination. Now they can apply for relief. On Friday, the USDA began accepting applications from farmers who have faced discrimination. This is written by Jessica Washington. It was posted on the 7th. It's no secret that black farmers have faced decades of discrimination in the United States. But we don't have to go as far back as sharecropping, to look at the myriad of ways this country has mistreated black Americans who help put food on all of our tables. An NPR analysis this year found that black farmers receive a noticeably lower share of direct loans given to farmers. Their findings align with a similar 2021 analysis from CNN News, which found that black and Asian farmers were more likely to be rejected for loans than white farmers, All of this is to say that the U.S. Department of Agriculture doesn't have a great track record of treating black and other minority group farmers well. But a new program could help even the the scales a bit. On Friday, the USA began accepting applications for financial relief for farmers who faced discrimination. She gives a link to click on, which I will announce at the end of this article. The program is offering farmers up to $500,000, although it's worth noting that the USDA told CNN that applicants are unlikely to receive the full amount. Applications for relief funding will be open until October 31st. According to the USDA, The applications will be reviewed in November and December, and payment will be sent out soon thereafter. The Department says that the payments will not be sent or considered on a first-come-first basis. In order to qualify, the discrimination has to have taken place before January 1, 2021. This isn't the first time the Biden administration has attempted to pay restitution to farmers facing discrimination. Debt relief payments were originally supposed to go to farmers of color under the 2021 COVID relief package. However, white farmers filed a lawsuit arguing that it would have been racially discriminatory against them. The courts agreed and blocked that measure. This new relief money, which comes as a part of the Inflation Reduction Act is available to anyone who can prove discrimination regardless of their race or background. Although this money certainly won't right decades of injustices against black farmers and other racial minority groups, it appears to be a step in the right direction. The link appears to be 22007apply.gov. However, I'm being told there's a potential security risk ahead. But we have 22007apply.gov. That security risk meaning um, protection on the Internet of some kind or another. (laughs) Sorry for the confusion. Okay, next article, still reading from The Root, written by Jessica Washington, also published on the 7th. More recent news that is everywhere right now, affirmative action ruling. HBCUs plan to fill the void in the wake of affirmative action ruling. HBCU leaders discuss how they can provide an option for black students left by the Supreme Court's affirmative action decision. The Supreme Court's decision to gut affirmative action will likely have devastating ripple effects for decades to come. Experts have predicted that the number of black students enrolled in, quote, highly selective schools will decline as a result of the ruling. But those schools aren't the only options for black students looking for a quality education. St. Augustine's University and Historically Black University in Raleigh, North Carolina, says they are prepared to offer a place to students left behind by the Supreme Court decision. Our education is quality, said Leslie rodriguez McClellan, Senior Vice President for Student Experience, in an interview with ABC11, adding, At least 50% of black teachers in this country are educated at HBCUs. We still educate engineers and attorneys. Rodriguez says St. Augustine's is expecting more students to enroll next year. We are looking at increasing and updating our HVAC on campus. We're investigating building more housing on campus, and we're increasing the capacity. Our information technology infrastructure is being improved on the campus, so we'll be ready, Rodriguez told the local news outlet. Rodriguez isn't the only one discussing the role of HBCUs in a world without race-conscious affirmative action policies. Justin Hansford, director of the Thurgood Marshall Civil Rights Center at Howard University, told The Root that more funding should be going toward HBCUs like Howard in the wake of the decision to fill the gap. If not, Hansford warns that college attendance among black Americans could drop. At the moment, most colleges are still scrambling to find out how they'll address this massive shift in the college admissions process. But for HBCUs, this could be an opportunity to reach students impacted by the decision. Next, we turn to thegrio.com for another article about that Farmers Relief Program, which will give slightly more detail. This was written by Jaron Keith Gaynor and it was published July 7th. Black farmers can finally make claims for $2.2 billion USDA program. The U.S. Department of Agriculture announced it is now accepting applications for its Discrimination Financial Assistance program, which is being funded by the Inflation Reduction Act the IRA. The program provides financial assistance for farmers, ranchers, and forest landowners who experienced discrimination by USDA. In the agency's farm lending prior to 2021, the opening of the application process is an important step in delivering on our commitment of providing financial assistance to those who face discrimination in USDA farm lending as swiftly and efficiently as possible," Agriculture Secretary Tom Vilsack said in a p,ardon me, press release provided to the Grio in advance of Friday's announcement. Black farmers will undoubtedly seek to claim financial assistance under the program. For decades, they accused USDA of discrimination and denying them needed loans to keep their land and farms operating. The Discrimination Financial Assistance Program was established after the Biden-Harris administration's initial $4 billion debt relief program for black and other socially disadvantaged farmers came to a halt due to the class-action lawsuit from white farmers who claimed the program under the American Rescue Plan discriminated against them. Democrats in Congress rewrote the law to remove race from the eligibility requirements for the USDA program. While the initial loan assistance in ARP remains in Texas court, Black farmers followed up with their own lawsuit intended to pressure USDA to forge ahead with the intended relief. The latest loan assistance program for which farmers can now apply is broader and does not mention race explicitly. However, the administration made clear the program is intended for farmers who have faced harm by the USDA. After the IRA was signed into law by President Joe Biden in August 2022, the agency took time to select vendor partners and community-based organizations who by law will be responsible for educating farmers about the program and providing any needed assistance throughout the application process. Several of the organizations selected specifically work with black and brown farmers. We realized the importance of this in terms of the overall equity work at the department, said a USDA senior advisor, who agreed to speak on background with the Griot on the condition of anonymity, went on, but also in terms of being able to incorporate some needed input from the people that we are trying to help. The USDA official said formulating a process and selecting the right vendors took some time, but emphasized that a lot of thought went into it because it is critically important. Farmers, ranchers, and forest landowners who believe they are eligible will have to apply on the government website, again, 22007apply.gov. Applicants will have to go through the process of proving they were discriminated against. The applications will remain open until October 31st. The USDA stressed that the discrimination, me, discrimination Financial Assistance Program is not a first-come, first-served process and all applications received or postmarked before the October deadline will be considered. Payments will be awarded to recipients shortly after applications are reviewed. However, it's not clear whether that review process will be By the end of the year or January. I see. I'm going to reread that. It's not clear whether the review processes will be by the end of the year or by January 2024. Secretary of Agriculture says that our goal is to get there, pardon me, our goal is to get these out of the end, out. pardon me again, starting over. Secretary of Agriculture says that our goal is to get these out by the end of the year and we're working toward that, said the USDA senior advisor. Despite its alleged history of discrimination, USDA has made concerted efforts to improve its practices and personnel as it relates to race. Last year, the agency formed a 15-member independent equity commission to address discrimination in its ranks, as the Grio previously reported. Secretary Vilsack said in his statement about Friday's announcement that the USDA is committed to helping discriminated farmers through the entire application process. The USDA Secretary said the agency will, quote, "...continue to work with our national vendor partners and community-based organizations to make sure eligible farmers, ranchers, and forest landowners have clear information about what is available to them, how to apply, and where to obtain assistance with their questions at each step of the way." This author, Garen Keith Gaynor, is a White House correspondent and the managing editor, editor of Politics at the Grio, based in Washington, D.C. Next comes an appreciation obituary notification written by Daniel E. Slotnick for The New York Times, and this was posted June 17th. I work to give voice to my people and the challenges we face. Jessie Maple, who built careers as a camera woman and an independent filmmaker when black women were almost non-existent in those fields, and who then left meticulous instructions for later generations to follow in her footsteps, died on May thirtieth at her home in Atlanta. She was eighty-six. Her death was confirmed by E. Danielle Butler, her longtime assistant and the co-author of her self-published 2019 memoir titled The Maple Crew. Director and camerawoman were just two of Ms. Maple's many jobs. She also worked as a bacteriologist, wrote a newspaper column, owned coffee shops, baked vegan cookies, and ran a 50-seat theater in the basement of her Harlem brownstone. Miss Maple had been writing a column called Jessie's Grapevine for the New York Courier, a Harlem newspaper, when she moved to broadcast journalism from print in the early 1970s because she wanted to reach more people. After studying film editing in programs at WNET, New York's public television station, and Third World Cinema, the actor Ossie Davis's film company, and working as an apprentice editor on the Golden Parks film's Shaft's Big Score from 1972 and The Super Cops from 74, Ms. Maple realized that she yearned to be behind the camera. In 1975, she became the first African-American woman to join New York's Cinematographers Union, now called the International Cinematographers Guild, according to Indiana University's Black Film Center and Archive which holds a collection of her papers and films. But, she said, the union banned her after she fought to change rules that required her to complete a lengthy apprenticeship. If I had waited, I would... Pardon me. If I had waited, I never would have become a camera person, Miss Maple told the New York Times for a 2016 article about women who broke barriers to work on film crews. She went on, so I took him to court. She sued several New York television stations for gender and racial discrimination in the mid-1970s, and she won a lawsuit against WCBS in 1977 that earned her a trial period with the station. That blossomed into a freelance career there and at the local ABC and NBC stations. Miss Maple wrote that she faced crew members who did not want to work with her and nasty whispers, sometimes quite audible, behind her back. But she persevered even when she got assignments that felt especially difficult. For example, flying in a helicopter to get aerial footage on a near-daily basis even though she had motion sickness. In 1977, Miss Maple wrote about her experiences in... How to Become a Union Camera Woman, a detailed guide to succeeding in a forbidding industry. But as TV news moved from film to video, Miss Mabel decided that she would rather become an independent filmmaker with complete control of her work. She made short documentaries with Leroy Patton, her husband, including Methadone, Wonder Drug, or Evil Spirit, before turning to features. Ms. Maple said she wanted to shoot films about issues that were important to her community. "'I want to tell the stories about things that bother me, which may not otherwise be told,' she wrote in her memoir. "'I strive to use the resources that are around me. Most importantly, I work to give voice to my people and the challenges we face.'" According to the Black Film Center and Archive, Miss Maple was the first known African-American woman to produce, write, and direct an independent feature film. That film, Will, from 1981, followed a former college basketball player struggling with addiction, played by Obaka Adeduno, who takes in a 12-year-old boy to prevent him from developing a habit of his own, played by Loretta Devine, oh, in her first film role, played Will's significant other. Ms. Maple's second feature, Twice as Nice, from 1989, was the story of twin sisters, both college basketball standouts who are preparing to take part in a professional draft. The movie starred Pamela and Paula McGee, twins who won back-to-back NCAA basketball championships at the University of Southern California, but were not professional actors. In 1982, Miss Maple and Mr. Patton opened a theater to show Will and other independent films in the basement of their brownstone on 120th Street in Harlem. They called it 20 West, billed it as the home of black cinema and featured movies from up-and-comers like Spike Lee, they closed it about a decade later because she said she wanted to focus more on her own films. Next article from the Washington Post. Written by Anne E. Marimau. Justice Ketanji Brown Jackson's bold debut and independent streak. In the pardon me, in her first year on the Supreme Court the nation's first black female justice broke at times with her liberal colleagues. In a rare public speech this spring, Supreme Court Justice Ketanji Brown Jackson talked to law school graduates about the challenges of starting a new job and about her love of musical theater. One of her favorites, she said, is the smash hit Hamilton. A particular song resonates, history has its eyes on you. Given my own experience over the past year, I think it's pretty obvious why, she told the crowd at Boston University School of Law's convocation in May. Jackson, on Friday, completed her rookie term as the first black woman to serve on the nation's highest court. Forgive me, I didn't state this was posted on July 2nd. Making a forceful debut from the bench and in writing while showing signs of an independent streak, as anticipated, she was most often aligned with the court's two other liberal justices, Sonia Sotomayor and Elena Kagan, putting her on the losing side of high-profile, contentious decisions involving affirmative action in college admissions, gay rights, and President Biden's student loan forgiveness program. But Jackson also demonstrated a willingness to part ways with her liberal colleagues even when they were on the same side of an issue. To express her own vision of the law, she authored more solo dissenting opinions, three, than any of the three most recent justices to join the court did as newbies. And Jackson surprised some observers by teaming up several times with conservative Justice Neil M. Gorsuch, typically in cases involving a conflict between government power and the rights of individuals. She was not going to sit on the sidelines. She dove in and made her presence known, said New York University law professor Melissa Murray, who also was among the attorneys Biden considered nominating to fulfill his promise to name Stephen J. Breyer's successor the first black female justice. Pardon me, to name as Stephen G. Breyer's successor. Biden may have been looking for a black woman, but she wasn't just any black woman, said Murray. She was excellent and prepared and made a critical difference in a number of cases. Most notably, Jackson's presence led to a remarkably pointed exchange last week with Clarence Thomas, the only other black justice on the bench, about the meaning of race and racial disparities in the United States. In her dissent from the court's landmark decision rejecting the use of race in college admissions, Jackson responded directly to Thomas's interpretation of a colorblind constitution and his harsh critique of what he described as Jackson's view that, quote, almost all of life's outcomes may be unhesitatingly ascribed to race. Jackson answered in a pithy, rhetorical style to what she called Thomas's prolonged attack on a dissent I did not write. With let-them-eat-cake-obliviousness, quoting, Today, the majority pulls the ripcord and announces colorblindness for all by legal fiat, Jackson wrote. But deeming race irrelevant in law does not make it so in life. From the outset in October, Jackson was an enthusiastic questioner speaking more often during oral arguments than any other brand-new justice in at least the three past three decades. She also had more to say than any sitting justice, with the exception of Chief Justice John G. Roberts, Jr., on two occasions, according to data analyzed by Adam Feldman and Jake Truscott for the Empirical SCOTUS blog. Jackson, 52, joined the bench after years of running her own courtroom as a federal district judge in Washington, pumping out orders and opinions. Perhaps for that reason, Jackson displayed a level of confidence not typical of a first-term justice, said Feldman. We've come to assume that first-term justices are in an acclamation period where they keep their heads down and are willing to join in on other justices' views and develop jurisprudence over time. She hasn't fit that prototype, said Feldman. She has a lot to say and isn't willing to cut corners to get her views out to the public. While Jackson quickly established a high-profile role on the bench, her public appearances have been more limited, with law school graduation speeches at American University, where she was close friends with the dean, and at Boston University, a commitment she made before her nomination. Every justice has to decide how much to temper their views to get to a five-vote majority, and when they feel it is important to stake out their own position. Jackson was in the majority 84% of the time, slightly more than both Sotomayor and Kagan, but she also went out on her own in a trio of solo dissents. Sean Murata, an appellate attorney and close watcher of the court, said... Jackson appears to be positioning herself as a thought leader for the left wing of the court in the way that Thomas has for years done on the right. Thomas led the court in dissents this term, writing a total of nine. So far, it seems Justice Jackson is leaning towards sharing her own views without compromise, said Marotta. She was nominated because she has strong views, and she's holding true to them. Jackson's background as a federal public defender was on display in a case involving the rights of prisoners to challenge their convictions after the Supreme Court changed the requirements for conviction under the criminal statute at issue. Jackson delivered a 39-page opus that said the majority, quote, "...unjustifiably closes off all avenues for certain defendants to secure meaningful consideration of their innocence claims." It was also notable that Sotomayor and Kagan did not join it, issuing their own two page dissents. She was the lone dissent in an eight to one decision involving the liability of unionized workers on strike writing We have no business delving into this particular label dispute pardon me into this particular labor dispute at this time. Matt Ginsburg General Counsel. For the AFL CIO said Jackson's strength is an ability and willingness to talk about how complex legal decisions affect ordinary people and their lives. He pointed to her questions in a case involving regulations that affect overtime pay for highly compensated workers who are not on salary. It doesn't really matter that he might get one hundred thousand dollars over the course of the year, Jackson said during oral arguments. What he has to know is how much is coming in at a regular clip, so that he can get a babysitter, so that he can hire a nanny, so that he can pay his mortgage. Although she was most often allied with the liberals in the term's biggest controversies, Jackson teamed up with Gorsuch in four cases that drew on his a tendency toward libertarianism, and her experience defending indigent clim- clients. Pardon me, Jackson joined Gorsuch's concurrence, for instance when the court sided with the woman who said the government unfairly profited when it seized and sold her property for more than she owed in taxes. The pair said they would have gone further than the majority to also find that the excessive fines levied on the woman probably violated the Constitution. You certainly see threads in both of their opinions of making sure that the individual is seen and heard, said Toby Young, a former law clerk, to Gorsuch. From what I've seen, he went on, neither of them has ever been afraid to be their own person. Jackson's predecessor, Briar, for whom she was a law clerk, was also known as one of the most active speakers during oral arguments. But Jackson's questions were less whimsical and more pointed than Briar's, and she brought a different view, particularly to issues involving race. It is difficult to remember a term in which a new justice arrived with such a powerful voice, said Gregory G. Gare, a Supreme Court practitioner who served as Solicitor General under President George W. Bush. And he went on. Justice Jackson has staked out a position on the far left of the court with Justice Sotomayor, but she has breathed new life and a fresh perspective on many arguments on the left. In a case involving voting rights in Alabama, Jackson invoked originalism, typically employed by conservatives, to make the case that the Fourteenth Amendment was race conscious by design. During oral arguments in the affirmative action case, Jackson used a memorable hypothetical asking whether it would be fair and legal to allow a white student to write about multiple past generations of his family who attended a particular college, but not to consider the race of a black applicant who might write about how his enslaved ancestors were barred from admission to the school. To demand that colleges ignore race in today's admissions practices, and thus disregard the fact that racial disparities may have mattered for where some applicants find themselves today, is not only an affront to the dignity of those students for whom race matters, she wrote. Roberts seemed to take note of Jackson's concern when writing the ruling that rejected race-based admissions policies, saying that, quote, "...nothing in this opinion should be construed as prohibiting universities from considering an applicant's discussion of how race affected his or her life, be it through discrimination, inspiration, or otherwise." End of article. Here is another one from Salon, S A L O N. dot com. It says it's a book excerpt. Coming from D Watkins. Why I'm sick of woke culture. The more affluent control the narrative, so being woke will not. Pardon me. So being woke will be hot until the rest of black America gets a voice. Big bruh, I got these Stay Woke shirts, hashtag Stay Woke, for $20, said the dude I've bought my incense from for over five years now. His shop is just a little ways away from my neighborhood and he always has a nice selection. Dude bagged my goods, I paid him and proceeded to walk away as he grabbed me by the sleeve of my hoodie to show off his new merch. I'm good, bro, I said. I'm not really woke. He laughed. You better wake up, man. It's a jungle out there. Stay woke. I shot a peace sign at him and left the store. Everybody's woke now, right? I wonder how that's working out. The term woke simply refers to not being asleep, not being ignorant to the issues that plague black America, racism, Poor schools, food deserts, crooked cops, our broken justice system, unfair hiring practices, and the banks that bury us with vicious black taxes like unfair interest rates on mortgages, you know, the hurdles. Woke well, people know the origins of everything that hurts black people, the policies that allow these systems to function and have the most effective language when giving the opportunity to explain these issues, mainly online or during the intermission at spoken word readings. Woke people are smart. They are normally educated with at least one bachelor's degree. Keep a copy of a James Baldwin or Bell Hooks book on their person, have a passport, are fluent in all forms of social media, and have been to Cuba at least once since Obama lifted the embargo. Woke people wear locks, or baby froze, and use coconut oil, olive oil, and hemp soap. They blog, they have a brand, they wrap themselves in henna or war paint at festivals, even though they rarely engage in a physical war, if they ever engage at all. Woke people have the best graphic t-shirts and catchiest hashtags. They have great jobs or no job because their families can afford to float them. They are the first to pop up at a protest, take the best viral images, and run home to talk about it on the Internet. Sharing variations of the same image repeatedly. Here are some of my favorites. Group selfie at the protest. Screaming at a cop they'd never touch. Definitely that iconic image where a small group does the black power fist bump. Solo image doing the black power fist bump. And if you're lucky, you'll get that newsworthy clip of yourself being arrested shouting, Fight the power as you go off to be detained for three hours. I went to two protests before I realized they weren't for me. The woke crowd seemed off, and I didn't know why. I guess it felt like everybody was talking to a group of people who didn't listen. It wasn't until Donald Stevenson, a real activist sitting in the audience at a panel I sat on in southeast D.C., broke it down that I understood. I shared the stage with two well-known authors and community leaders, reentry expert Tony Lewis, Jr., and artist Aaron Maben, We were talking about our community work to a small crowd, sharing successes and failures, and telling people what they could do to help us if they wanted to be a part of a positive changes happening in D.C. and Baltimore beyond protests. It was light, funny, and I think some people were inspired. Then, this loud-mouthed dude in a linty sweater with sparkles and wide-legged dress pants barged in yelling, Y'all Black Lives Matter people not going to be coming to my neighborhood and telling me how to run it. I laughed to keep from flipping out on the dude. My temper had got the best of me on a panel before, and I didn't want to embarrass myself or the organizers. "'Aye, man, you owe us an apology. You know who I am and the work I do,' said Tony. "'We all work together to make D.C. better for for everybody, and these brothers are doing great work in Baltimore, so sit down. You sound silly.' Dress pants guy became real humble real fast. I couldn't stop laughing, but his anger sparked a bigger conversation about the black narrative in general. A woman in the front row shifted the conversation. Y'all only talk about police murder. What all this about black-on-black crime? That's the real problem. Black lives don't matter when we kill our own. Stevenson responded from the audience. Protesting has always been the response of middle-class African Americans to injustices a response that takes a great deal of strategic planning, resources, and education on various issues. Black Lives Matter isn't any different, while on the contrary, the response of poorer African Americans is more in-your-face direct and oftentimes referred to as hostile resistance or abrupt disorderly conduct. One asked, where is the outcry when blacks kill other blacks? Well, let me show you. It can be found within the countless murals found in the black community, the countless trees lined with teddy bears and liquor bottles, the hostility toward police in the community who are sworn to protect and serve. It can be seen in the overflow of emotion at funerals of slain young people, and due to the lack of positive safe outlets for grief and loss counseling, will often lead to self-medication to suppress these emotions. I can go on and on, so honestly all the woke people exit left let's coin a new phrase get active to be woke for most african-americans to me is the equivalent of white guilt it's usually thrown around by the offspring of black elites either ivy league or prestigious h b c u grads individuals who have no consistent ties to inner-city african-american communities where many of the issues they take pride in fighting for Are simply the everyday reality for those who have no other choice but to endure. End quote from the guy in the audience. He summed it up, everything I was thinking, in one response, and it validated my experience. Stevenson's point made me think about the middle and upper middle class African Americans unable to understand the poor and vice versa. We speak differently, but society puts us in the same group because of our skin color. As always, the more affluent get the opportunity to control the narrative, so being woke is hot and will be until the rest of black america gets a voice. That brings me to the end of our time. I had to rush a little bit. I wasn't too fast there. Thank you so much for joining us. This was the Black Experience Hour. AINC programming is brought to you by Wonder Brands, enhancing customers' lives through the responsible use of cannabis. If you enjoyed this program, please register for our free services at www.aincolorado.org or by calling 303